mi gente, welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. Hola, mi gente. I am so excited to bring you this last episode of season four with Estuardo Rodriguez. Estuardo Rodriguez is a Peruvian American. He is the president and CEO of the Friends of the National Museum of the American Latino. Throughout his diverse political career, Estuardo's commitment to outreach in the Hispanic community has been constant. At the DNC, he built a cross-platform Spanish language media network that was leveraged in support of John Kerry's presidential campaign. He was an attorney at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development under Secretaries Henry Sinceros and Andrew Como, and he has worked on behalf of the U.S. Department of State as an independent political analyst in Latin America and Europe. I met Stuardo thanks to Fundación Puro Peru. They brought Stuardo as the keynote speaker in our scholarship award ceremony that we had earlier this year in March 2022, where we awarded two $1,000 scholarships to Peruvian-American students. He was such a dynamic speaker with such an interesting background that I decided to invite him to join us on the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. Welcome, Estuardo Rodriguez, to Peruvians of USA. I am thrilled to have you here. I am so happy that we were able to make this conversation happen so quickly. And prior to the episode, I introduced the audience to who you are, the great things you're doing, how we connected. But please briefly introduce yourself to the audience of Peruvians of USA. Absolutely. Thank you again for the opportunity. I'm very excited to be with you just to know that there's a platform like this to highlight the amazing work and leadership of Peruvian Americans all over this country that I have shared with you. We are everywhere. We are in every industry, making changes, advancing in, in various sectors, the wealth and, and the great the greatness of, of our country. So I'm very excited to, to be here with you. My work runs the gamut of government, government affairs. I've been involved in government affairs and with this firm as a co-founder, now 17, 18 years. I keep saying 17, but it's really going on 18. I'm, I keep trying to shave time, but it's been about 18 years now working in uh, a number of areas, technology, telecommunications, as well as civil rights, connectivity issues, the homework gap, a number of areas that impact the Latino community and hopefully, ideally, lift up communities of color so that there are greater opportunities to advance wealth creation within our communities as well as leadership. So we're very excited about this, this time that we're living in right now uh, because of all the opportunities uh, in Congress and with the White House to make serious progress. And then, of course, the reason and how he, you and I met was also because of my work with the American Latino Museum, uh, which I've also been working on 17 years. We are very excited that the museum was actually authorized, and now we are fighting to make sure that it is built in the place where America's story is told on our national mall. So all the proving Americas need to step up for this one, and we'll talk more about that. Yes, and that was definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you into the podcast, because not many of us Peruvian Americans here in the U.S. know that the person leading 
this effort, the National Museum of the American Latino is Peruvian, <laughs> right? That is, it was fantastic. It was, I was so proud to hear that and to, to learn it. Can you share a little bit with the audience how you got involved with this initiative, how you became the president and CEO? Huge, big responsibility, obviously. And you've been at this for several years, over a decade. But tell us about that journey because progress is slow. So how do you stay motivated? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It is slow, but it, it is still progress, right? It's still progress. And I think what the big takeaway is for me, because I want to answer that first, that progress is slow piece, is that you can't make significant, serious change overnight. To this day, especially after the last few years that we have lived, you see that the disparities are very real. Disparities continue. Civil rights is still an issue in so many ways. The murder of, of George Floyd elevated again the needed, much needed police reforms, criminal justice reforms that are needed. And this is a fight that has been going on for decades and decades, right? But the fight never stops and we never give up and we never surrender. We keep making incremental changes. And so I got involved in 2004 and worked as an attorney with the Department of Housing and Development out of law schools. I got frustrated with government, not to say that government's bad. I just got frustrated, <laughs> but I moved on and into communications and um, working on health issues for the Latino community. And then I ultimately moved into working with the Democratic Party, worked on two presidential campaigns in the communications area, and then ultimately decided to go back into government affairs, where I co-founded the firm, the Rabin Group, Robert Rabin as the, as the president of the company. And in that time... We heard that a bipartisan effort, Congresswoman Ileana ross Leighton, formerly former, former Congresswoman from Florida, and Congressman Javier Becerra from California, who is now the Health and Human Services Secretary under the Biden administration, they had offered up legislation to launch the creation of an American Latino Museum Commission. And we thought, why not volunteer our time based on all the work that I had done in the communications area and advocacy why not volunteer our time and try to support the legislation, let more people know that it was happening, engage folks to support passage of that bill. That was 2004, and I honestly had not had experience with a piece of legislation like that before. And it always became, we're going to do this. We got that done. Okay, now let's do the next piece, and let's, let's do the next piece. And before you know it, 17 years later, December 2020, we finally passed the last authorization bill. And I, I have to be honest with you, if you had told me from the beginning, oh yeah, it's going to take you about two decades, I would have moved on to something else. I would have said, ah, I think I'm good. But they had me with these incremental pieces and moments of success all along the way that altogether added up to 17 years. But it was a beautiful thing in the end uh, to get that bill over the finish line. And we have a little bit more to go, but I think it's going to be an opportunity for every generation, not just within the Latino community, but across America, to understand the depth of our impact in this country, even before it was the United States, even before George Washington took up arms. It has always had a deep root that is, uh, whether that's the Spanish, the Mexican, Central Americans, even South Americans. But we can, we can talk a little more about that as we go along. 
Yeah. And thank you for, you know, reminding all of us that, yeah, Latinos have been here way before the English colonizers and many of us have indigenous roots as well. So our ancestors have been here way, way before. But, you know, to play devil's advocate a little bit, growing up here in the U.S., when we talk about Latino history, besides being a page or two, unfortunately, in the history books right now, it does circle around a lot on Mexican-Americans, the Puerto Rican, you know, uh, immigration from the island to New York to the Northeast or Cuban-Americans. And so as South Americans, as Peruvians, we don't really see ourselves reflected a lot. And so I wonder if there's anybody out there in the audience who's wondering, as a Peruvian-American, why should I care about the, the Museum of the American Latino if it's not going to reflect me? Right. Well, it, it will reflect. It will reflect. Peruvian contributions, because I know for a fact there have been Peruvian engineers at NASA. I know that there are Peruvian Americans who have served within the Obama administration and prior administrations. You know, there are so many sectors that our community has, have had influence, uh, deep influence. The problem is that in this moment, when we talk about, well, why does it matter to Peruvian Americans? It's because we don't know the stories. If we knew the stories, then we could say, well, of course, we need to have the museum, right? That's, that's ultimately the goal, is if you have a home for the museum, then you are able to begin to pull out all the stories that are hidden in attics, under the beds, in the closets of our family, the photographs, right? The newspaper articles that are hidden there because history isn't just what's in the textbook. It's what lives inside your grandmother's basement or, or her closet in the shoeboxes. And, and that's what we need to pull out to exhibit in this beautiful museum that will one day be built. I'll take a page from the African-American Museum. When they started that museum, it wasn't an effort to just bring together what collections existed in museums and cultural centers around the country. They actually went on a tour around predominantly Black communities and said, bring out everything you've got. Share with us that Bible that was passed on generation after generation then led back to the families that were slaves so that you can begin to see how much is hidden out there that we don't talk about. And I, I think the blessing that I had, and I, I honestly believe this, when I'm asked about the future museum and what's going to be in it, I often hear, oh, well, maybe it's just going to be about the Mexicans and you know, the Mexicans, they get all the attention. And then I hear from many of the Mexican-Americans, uh, it's going to be a museum that's just going to whitewash the atrocities of the Spanish, right? And then others dissect it even further. Well, you know, these Cubans, it's just going to be about, you know, how the Cubans and their, and their plight with Castro and, and all of that. I came at this from a very neutral position. I didn't have this Peruvian-American community anchoring me down to a specific narrative of Latinos in the U.S., right? I wasn't tied to the, to the Boricua community and the culture, nor was I tied to the Chicano movement. I came in almost like a clean slate, receptive and open and willing to learn about everything. So that I came in almost as a neutral party to say, you're right, you're right, and you're right. All of those stories are important and we're going to put them all into this museum. But we have to work together in a collaborative way first. And once we're in the museum, as we say, ahí nos peleamos, right? Ahí discutimos. Ahí tenemos las confrontaciones para, para ver qué, uh, cómo se va a presentar la historia. 
And I think that's really what, what we need to continue to focus on because without the hope to even bring these stories together, we're not even going to be able to educate ourselves ar around the, the depth of our stories, right? We're going to just continue to be thinking, well, them and they and ellos, right? Instead of we as a collective and what we've been able to accomplish, you know, over 500 years. Wow. Yeah. I, I love the fact that you came in with a neutral position and you were not anchored down in one story over another, because I think that is so critical. And you mentioned leadership earlier, how you want to focus on promoting uh, or growing the leadership within the Latino community. And it's been so, I, I've noticed it's just been difficult because we all have such different backgrounds, have different contexts that it's been, it's, it's, a, it's a bit harder maybe for us to align behind one leader, one cause, because we all are coming at it from different perspectives. So kudos to you to being able to be more neutral because it's very, very difficult to do that. <laughs> it is. It is difficult. And look, as I joke with my colleagues, right? You know, I'm always card carrying Democrat, right? Always been very much aligned with the progressive movement. But I joke with my colleagues that the longer that I do this work, the more I end up being painted as a conservative leaning Republican because the community changes. The community changes. When I started, you know, the dispute was Hispanic versus Latino. The dispute now is Latino versus Latinx versus Latinx, right? And as you get older, you need to still keep the door open, the, the, prop, the opportunity to allow people to define themselves, to give them space to embrace their identity, while at the same time encouraging them to not point a finger if you don't embrace the identity they embrace, right? That's the collaboration that has to happen because I, I've been asked many times from the you know, media and others, well, why is it the American Latino Museum? Why is it the American Latinx Museum? You know, why are we still using Latino? Latino is, is, uh, is a term from, from Europe and we're not European or not all of us are European. And the conversation goes on and on that way. And I find that it's so interesting that we find so many ways to divide ourselves, right? And so what I come away with ultimately is that if you identify as Latinx, well, then you identify as Latinx. I am not going to tell a Boricua or a Chicano, no, 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 you're Latinx. Their culture, their identity, their community, their flavors come from what they have grown up with, right? Their community, their environment. And you're not going to tell someone you know, how they should identify. Instead, you're better off saying yes to all of that, right? In the end, we still have to work together to bring all these stories together. And likely, there will be an exhibit on the identity of Latinos. Yeah, no, great. Spanish, Chicano to Latinx to Latine and on and on and on. Yeah, and language is ever evolving and it's a reflection of how as we as people are evolving. So I think to your point, we just need to remain open and allow others to disagree with us and define themselves as they best want to. Absolutely, absolutely. As Peruvians, we'll just continue to debate is rice or chocolate? Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're like, hey, that's not the class, that's not the class, chocolate. <laughs> All right. So let's give it a little bit to your career path and the lessons learned. You know, you mentioned you started as an attorney, went into government, you know, wanted to kind of get away from government and went into communications. But to, you know, become an attorney, you went to law school. Why law school? And what was your main takeaway? I would love to, I would love to say that this is like, you know, a, a calling for me or something like that. Um, I am, I am a stereotypical first generation where I just knew that my dad came for a reason and I just had to do 
these things. I had to go to college. And then when I, when I was finishing college, I actually went to college down in, in, in Miami, uh, Barry University down in Miami Shores. And then after that, after those, I mean, that was South Beach, which is a whole other podcast that you and I can have and set up. Uh, uh, Proving Americans after dark. Uh, but we, that whole life ended up taking me over to law school because in my mind, it was like, well, I got to go to law school. But it really wasn't until I was halfway through with law school that I realized the significance for me. Because I often think about, well, even better example, we saw what happened recently in the confirmation hearing with Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. This is a judge, a woman who has been before the Senate Judiciary Committee four times. She has been interviewed for countless hours. She's been confirmed already three times previously. And her resume is deeper in the law than any other recently nominated by, I would say 50, 60 more years, any recently confirmed judge on the Supreme Court. That's how deep her experience is and how much she stands out as a judge. And yet they still talked to her as if she was not good enough. And when I saw that, I was like, yeah, I totally get that. Because when I was in law school, surrounded by uh, students whose parents were lawyers, doctors, asset managers, on and on and on, who had an understanding of law school, they knew what they were supposed to do. They didn't seem as stressed as I was. I realized that I needed, or at least I felt like I needed this because I needed to have something to say. I needed to have the experience. I needed to have that, that, that credibility more than anything. And after I moved on from law school and ended up in politics and government, I realized that in that community where everyone either worked for a senator or, or, a, or a member of the house had gone to some government, I believe government affairs school, if they didn't know who I was, the fact that I said, yes, I'm a lawyer, would immediately at least give me some standing to be in the conversation with them. And I look back on that and I feel like, how sad. How sad that I need to say, wait a minute, I'm a lawyer. I belong. And as a, as a, as a community that is very much always on an uphill battle with certain industries, I felt that I was armed. I was better prepared having that understanding of the law being able to have the analytical approach so low, I felt that I was better positioned. So I'd love to say that that was my plan all along, but it was something that I acquired and I learned as I went through it. And I, maybe I was exhausted because I went right through high school, college and, and law school, but it was worth it for me to have that experience and that education that brought credibility in rooms of people on Capitol Hill and in the White House where everyone had some level of pedigree that my family didn't originally have. My family came from Peru in the 60s, went right to work and self-made, started their businesses. And God bless, because of all that hard work that all of us contributed to, I was able to go to college and law school. And, and I credit all, all of it to what my, my parents were able to do. Wow. Your story about, you know, your thought process about law school and sort of the credentials or credibility it gave you, it just reminds me of, I read one of Obama's books. I don't, he has so many, and he talks about that. You need those credentials to be in certain rooms, to be allowed to be heard. And to your point, it's sad perhaps, but it, unfortunately it is the way right now the industry or the world like 
operates. So no, fortunate, but I, I stand by. Not not everybody has to go. I want to be clear. I'm not saying everybody who listens to this has to go to law school. Right. <laughs> there are other ways. There are other ways to do it. This is the the path I ended up choosing, and I often do recommend it to folks. But there are so many other ways to do that. So you also have a career in direct lobbying. So lobbying has different connotations to different folks. And there's some skills, some great skills that I think folks who have a particular passion or, or a group of people who have a traditional, traditional passion or topic that they want to get in, the attention of a member of Congress. I think you can share some of those lessons with us. Like tell us about your, your career in direct lobbying, sort of like what surprised you in that field. Yeah, you're right, number one, that there are different connotations. I've had people say to me, oh, wow, you're a lobbyist. And then I had people say, oh, wow, you're a lobbyist, right? And and I, the second one, the latter, I always say, well, what do you think that means, right? Because lobbyists are people that advocate for gun reform. They're people who advocate for the dreamers, are lobbyists, and those that advocate for immigration reform, right? But yet we don't call them lobbyists, we call them advocates. I represent a number of those same issues, but I also represent companies that are looking to see how Congress can better align with some of the work that they are advancing and services are advancing to customers, in particular, based on the work that I do, in particular, the communities of color. So through the pandemic, how does a company make sure that they're being responsive in an environment like a pandemic? where everyone's all of a sudden forced to work from home or study uh, from home. Not every, everyone was able to work from home, but those that had to and could, how do they maintain the opportunity and the lines uh, of connectivity for family and low-cost option? Sounds very boring and wonky, but that's, that's a vital effort that Congress needs to partner up with so that students could stay connected right? Not every issue is going to be that interesting. I mean, I, I find it interesting, but not, not every issue is going to be that interesting. Some issues are, are much more dry because it's about tax and how much does a company get taxed and how, uh, how do we make sure that they're paying their fair share of taxes, right? I've been blessed to be able to experience all sorts of political issues and work with a number of members in the House and the Senate. I will tell you, it was very, it, it is very competitive. An industry, even more so, it's competitive because the Latina and Latino community of lobbyists is small, uh, but growing every year. And there's a lot of you know, competition in the various industries. Um, my first experience feeling that I was a little bit over my head and over my head was when I was with a number of other lobbyists who said, oh, yeah, um, I got I to gotta go call the congressman real quick. Right. Or I, I was just texting the congressman and I felt like, am I supposed to have the congressman's cell phone number? Should I, should I have this? How many cell phones should I have? How many congressmen make me legit if I have, if I can text them? Learning as you're going along that it's about access. How quickly can we reach out to policymakers to explain to them where they, where we would like for them to be on certain issues or how we might work with them on certain issues, right? In the end, the other piece that was very important for me in lobbying was sometimes we're just not going to agree. Sometimes you're not going to be able to uh, get the client to understand the reality of a political dynamic and vice versa. You're not going to get the White House, the administration, or members of Congress to agree with you on an issue. And that's okay because lobbying isn't personal. It's you're sitting there under the Constitution. You have a right 
to petition Congress. That's what we're doing. We're petitioning Congress. Explain to them, here are the issues that we care about. Can we agree on certain things? And sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't, uh, as long as it doesn't become a personal issue and you know everyone continues to maintain relationships. Because if you're not working on one issue today, you're going to work on another issue tomorrow. You're going to have to work with the same members of Congress many times. And so your reputation and the professionalism, the seriousness, and the respect constantly throughout all of your dealings is so, so important. And burning bridges is not something, uh, if, you're, if you're used to just saying, well, make I money, make I money, and that's the end of it, well, then you shouldn't go into lobbying because you have to work with people you disagree with many, many times. Wow. I can see so much of being an advocate or a lobbyist is also telling a story and perfecting that skill of, of telling a story and why the member of Congress should care about this topic and how it impacts them and their community and the community that they represent. So this kind of ties to my next question as to, you are a very charismatic speaker. You have a reputation of being a tough professional. So how have you sharpened those skills? Many of us, you know, in our careers want to remain sharp, want to be better public speakers, better communicators. Has that, and I'm assuming it's intentional, but tell us, like, how has it been? How have you sharpened those skills and continue to stay sharp? Bumps, bruises, mistakes. Yeah. The, uh, the, you know, the career, the, the career takes you in many directions. And I think in any young career, you tend to think that you, you got a handle on it. And as some people often think back on their younger professional selves, you do think about, oh, I, I just didn't know enough. I just, I just didn't understand all of the important pieces to the work that I was going to do. And you make mistakes. I, I think. We will always want to try and avoid making big mistakes, but we shouldn't be embarrassed or beat ourselves up for making mistakes along the way. Those are the things that ultimately sharpen us, teach us, and, and remind us why. I don't want to be embarrassed like that ever again. I don't want to be in a situation like that again, or I don't want to have the member of Congress pissed off me because of a stupid mistake, right? And so I think that my beginnings had a little bit of a head start because I've always been engaged with people. I've always had the energy to talk and bring people together. I was always engaged and interested in how do I build coalitions, whether it was you know to raise money in Miami for HIV AIDS, or uh, if it was a, a fundraiser for a natural disaster in Central or South America. I mean, these are things that government Picanos, Piazza, and I'm like, let's go do something, right? So that was always helpful to me because I, I just enjoyed working with people. But it's the sharpening process along the way that helps me, me be much more confident today, but also it helps me not take things personally. I know I've said this before, but in politics, people try to get very personal. And if anything, just to push you back. And you see that all the time in, in campaigns and, and elections. You know, one candidate's bashing the other candidate and not social media, they're criticizing each other. Well, behind the scenes, it's the same. Uh, one lobbyist will come and say, don't listen to Estuardo. He's not telling you the truth. You know, you have to have a level of understanding that this is a personal thing. We're, we're all here to do a specific job. Once you start making it personal, you do make mistakes because you take it home with you. And then you think immediately like, I just need to react. I just need to, I just need to respond. 
right? And that's when you make decisions out of, out of passion. And as much as people see politics as this very glamorous passion fight where, you know, people are up on their soapbox and condemning certain things, the real work gets done in a professional way behind the scenes to try to get people to agree on certain things. And sometimes they don't. Um, so that's a very long way to say that I made a lot of mistakes that have helped me be a better advocate today, a better, a better speaker, a better lobbyist, uh, and helped me get as far as I, as I have gone today, which hopefully not only we got a longer, a longer way to go still. Wow. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, what I get from that is, you know, there's no such thing as failure as long as you learn from it, as long as you take away a lesson that you can implement at a later point. So, and not being afraid of making mistakes. I think many of us, we don't have, we feel like we don't have the luxury to make those mistakes because we don't come from cushy backgrounds, right? Where we can just yeah. fall on mom and dad. So we just got to be perfect all the time. And then that makes us not take the risk, not take a leap of faith, whether it's in a career decision, et cetera. So. No, I'll, I don't know how this is going to go over, but I'll share this story. I took it in a way that really inspired me. I was, I was, I was managing this coalition. We somehow made this really stupid mistake. And I sent an email immediately apologizing to the coalition members. One woman who I love to death, she's, she's just an amazing political figure in New York. She was on the thread and she reached out to me immediately and she said, don't ever do that again. And what she meant by that was, you are doing the work that no one else is doing. And if you make one mistake and apologize and put yourselves almost at their feet that I'm, I'm sorry, I'm so stupid, I messed up. It undercuts the credibility you're trying to build in terms of being a leader. And she wasn't saying don't ever apologize. She was just saying, you made a mistake, let's move on. You look at everybody in the eyes, you stand up tall and say, we're going to fix that. Let's keep moving and move on. Don't make a thing of it. Don't bring more attention to the mistake, especially if it was a small mistake. It wasn't something critical, right? But you have to, as a leader, understand the difference when you are trying to move a, a larger coalition forward and be a leader, do that. That means that when you make a mistake, you acknowledge it, you look everybody in the eye saying, here's what we have to do. And we just keep moving forward. Don't, don't let them see a weakness in you as a leader because it can be misinterpreted. It can be someone saying he doesn't know what he's doing, right? And so I say that people may not take that the right way because there is a nuance there. There's the temptation to take that to be arrogant. Don't apologize. Just tell people what they're supposed to do and, and have, more, have a more arrogant and entitled demeanor. And that's not what I'm saying. I think you need to be humble and know that and appreciate that people are willing to trust you and follow you, but also demonstrate the confidence that even in the mistakes, we're going in the right direction, right? Yeah. Competent people can also make mistakes. Don't lose that competency. So thank you for that message. So as we wrap up, what is your final message to the Peruvian American community? And how can members of our audience who want to learn more about the Museum of the American Latino, learn more about you, stay connected, support you in this initiative? Like how can they, uh, where should they go? 
AmericanLatinoMuseum.org, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, American Latino Museum. Please just follow us uh, and get involved. We have a very specific window of time. This isn't one of those things which is like, oh, get involved at some point when you get some time. Before the end of the year, the Smithsonian has to announce a location to build this museum. This museum will include everyone's story. Uh, it's important that we remind uh, each other that we are simply not in America's history books. We are not in the institutions of some of the biggest museums around the country to tell the stories of how this country came to be and how much of that is in large part due to the 500 years of history that we have contributed. So I look forward to working with all of you. Reach out through any of the social media platforms and get involved because there are real opportunities to get involved now and, and spread the word on this. And ultimately, I guarantee you there will be exhibits highlighting the amazing contributions of Peruanos from all over this country that have given for generations, have given to the greatness of, of, uh, of our nation. So thank you very much for the opportunity. All right. Thank you so much, Estrada. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Great talking with you too. Um, we'll keep in touch and keep talking. Just wanted to take a break here to share that Peruvians of USA now has an online store. Help us spread the message that El Mejor Amigo de un Peruano es Otro Peruano by visiting our online store. We also have feminine versions that said La Mejor Amiga de una Peruana es Otra Peruana or gender neutral versions. This could be the perfect gift for a Peruvian in your life. Visit the link on the episode notes or link in bio. All right, back to the episode. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.